Welcome, this is Mind the Shift. I am Anders Bolling. I think I mentioned in an earlier episode that I doubted anyone uses the word cyberspace anymore. And even the word internet seems almost getting obsolete. This is, of course, because we carry out larger and larger parts of our daily lives in this digital environment. But we still have the physical world around us and it won't go away anytime soon, presumably. So we will need words for that digital realm. And we need to understand how we act in it and why. My guest today is Nadine Michaelidis, a cyber psychologist and behavioral scientist. She is working with understanding the relationship between human behavior and technology, and more specifically, the human factor in cybersecurity. She's also a speaker and the founder of Anima. Welcome to the show, Nadine. Thank you. It's great to meet you, Anders. Uh, I mentioned that you founded Anima. What is Anima? Can you just explain that briefly? Well, it's, it's an advisory. It's a consultancy. So I advise cybersecurity organizations and international companies, small and large, um, on their people strategy. So how the people part um, interacts with their technology. Okay, excellent. Now you are English, but you are also Swedish, but English. <laughs> yeah. What's your background? You're in Gothenburg now on, Swedish, on the Swedish West Coast, right? Yeah, so it's one of those things that when I was in England, I was considered to be Swedish um, because my mother is Swedish and my father yeah. is Greek Cypriot actually. Um, but now I'm in Sweden, I'm, I'm British. So that's been a really interesting identity transformation for me. <laughs> but yeah, yes, what, what does that do with you when you, when you had that experience? Uh, what does it do? Well, I think... Um, you know, you don't feel at home at any place or you feel at home everywhere? What's, what is it? Which, which, of, which of it is it? <laughs> I think uh, long other days, I think in the beginning when I was growing up, I very much wanted to find that sense of home. And that for me was here in Sweden, actually, with my with my grandparents. It was where the fun, you know, where I could climb trees and, and have lots of fun. But um, gone are those days. And now I'm just really comfortable with being international, actually. Mm. And, and it becomes a little bit uncomfortable to try and identify myself as Swedish, English, Mediterranean. Um, I'm just me. I'm just a, a myriad of, of a range of different cultures and um, genetics. And uh, yeah, I like to think that I'm unique like everybody else. And, you know, whether I'm considered to be Swedish or English or Greek is kind of not really relevant to me anymore. I'm just international. That sounds wonderful. I can resonate with that very much. I mean, I, I don't have that kind of background, but I I really uh, sympathize with that feeling of being an international a citizen of the world, so to speak. I think it's easy to do when you're a grown-up and you have a, a kind of a secure sense of identity. But when you're a child moving to a new country faced with people that are different to you, that can be really, really tough. My, my children found it quite tough moving to Sweden, mm. um, even okay. though they're partly Swedish. Uh, I understand. How old are they? 16, 12 and 10. I've got three of them, two girls and a boy. Okay. Okay. Fine. Wow. Fantastic. Nadine, you uh, mentioned before the interview in a, in a little pre-interview form that we have that you had an 
aha moment when you realized that what you did in, the, in your private life could actually be transformed into making, making a living. Uh, it had to do with being a people, people ambassador. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that aha moment? Well, I think um, it wasn't so much my private life. It was more um, outside of my job description, outside of my right. job remit. Um, I used to have to spend a lot of hours in boardrooms um, talking for long hours with strategists, operational directors, finance directors, HR directors about the processes, the logistics, the finances of transformation, some sort of maybe organizational restructure or digital implementation. And we used to sit there for hours and hours and hours just talking about agile, all these different sort of meaningless words. Um, nobody was actually talking about the people. I always found that mm. remarkable that we could talk all day about this particular technological innovative product, but not about the people that were going to be using the equipment, the lab technicians, the patients who would be benefiting hopefully from it. Um, people seemed to be an afterthought. It wasn't even the last agenda item. It just wasn't on the agenda at all. And that I, I just used to sit there sort of shocked thinking, what on earth is going on? This is some sort of strange universe. Um, <laughs> so uh, I was, uh, you know, I was polite, I'm sure. But there, there were times when I just used to challenge each of those individuals and say, well, have you thought about the experience of the patient, the lab technician, the factory worker, the people that are going to be using this, this equipment or adopting this process, whether it's agile, Sigma, whatever it is. So um, really, it was just common sense, but how it was sort of became something extra, if you like, is it didn't feel like that was required of me. It felt as though I was being rebellious um, by bringing up these uh, difficult conversations to the boardroom. So did they question what you, what you were, you, you questioned them, did they question you back, so to speak? Did they Absolutely. say things like, what are you talking about? This isn't relevant. Or... <laughs> Well, they often ignored me and moved on to the next agenda item. Um, but, um, but yes, of course, yes, I, I, was, I was challenged at times. And, and that's where metrics came in. You know, I had to prove, I had to provide evidence that what I was saying had value to the room and to the, the project that we were talking about. Um, and metrics were, were a brilliant way of, of showing how important um, the employee voice was, for example, through surveys or whatever metrics we were using. Um, yeah, but what kind of I metrics think, was yeah, it? We're, we're was, talking... it, was it mainly surveys or what, what kind of evidence? Um, yeah, mainly have? surveys, maybe retention yeah. rates, how many employees stayed with us through a, a, an implementation, okay. a digital implementation that would change all behaviours um, across all the satellites of whatever company I was with. But, um, yeah, so... Um, I mean, and this was about developing developing software or developing other kinds of it wasn't hardware developing it was it was the key thing was transformation so it was a range of different digital transformations or organization it could be mergers and acquisitions um, digital implementations gen generally tended to be around sap um, ERP systems or okay. and consolidation of services in healthcare across different sites, which so logistical rearrangement, new equipment, new processes, 
Um, so a whole range of different types of technology involved, but also the people were, were changing and the processes were changed. So it was all a, a kind of mix of everything in one. Um, and lots of complexity and lots of things to consider, lots of people involved. Um, but that's my point, really. The people were the afterthought. Yeah. It was all about budget cuts and, and, and um, you know, saving money. Um, which, of course, we're living in very difficult economic times, and, and this is really important, but we have to be careful that we um, keep the end user in mind when we're doing that. Mm. So you realized that you could be a people, people ambassador uh, as, your, as, your, as your job? Well, it, yes, it was, it was something that was once um, said to me um, when I began to get a little bit of, of respect or people started to understand what I was trying to say, then, um, then I was called the people ambassador. But um, I think how I feel that it can be integrated into my full-time daily job now is that an education has changed. You know, this is a, I'm talking about over the last 20 years, and, and now there is much more of a bigger understanding of the importance of human-computer interaction, for example, yeah. the, the human factor in technology and how we have to address it, otherwise there are severe consequences. So that sort of educational piece, having to engage people with what I was trying to say is, is no longer there. Now I can permanently talk about the human element of technology or socio technical um side of technology essentially so you're no longer that kind of odd odd uh, uh, employee trying to yeah i'm not rebellious strange, so much anymore, rebellious anymore. Yeah. not so much maybe <laughs> not so yeah, much because, i'm still a bit well, abstract i would say uh, okay. but uh, i think you know that's the nature of of um having people from different disciplines um you know you have it talking a certain language that feels very techy very jargony that some some people at the creative industries might struggle to understand and then you have mm. psychologists you know that are talking a whole different terminology and quite sort of abstract theories and methodological approaches which feel a bit disconnected from what they're talking about so i think the key thing and one thing i've been able to develop over the years is the ability to translate it's to be that mediator between uh, different departments different languages so that we can try and find that common ground where we actually add value and, and progress the situation that we're faced with currently yes excellence yeah because of course the online world is part of our ordinary societal infrastructure it's very mm -hmm. It's very important, very Absolutely. big for, yeah. for everyone today, more than it was like 20 years ago when you started this career, as you were talking about. So how good are companies and governments, uh, authorities today at designing this infrastructure so that we all can use it in the most rational way, would you say? Um, I would say that we've come a very long way. I think, you know, now there are jobs, whole permanent positions based on user experience. You know, there is definitely a piece of work there around designing a solution that keeps the, the people in mind. Um, I still feel as though it's an afterthought. Um, and I and I feel as though that it's it's technologists that are um, in the room, that there aren't psychologists, there aren't that the people that are actually more focused on the people side of things in, in mm. project scoping groups, for example.
So, I mean, keeping people center, not just center, but at the forefront of any design concept is absolutely critical. And, you know, that's a no brainer. It should Mm. be happening without me saying anything. Um, And there's definitely advancements in in doing that. Um, But there's still a lack of understanding as to the consequences of what innovation is going to have on human beings as a race, but also the individual. Um, We can't possibly understand that through any amount of testing. So just being aware of that gives us a little bit of um, opportunity to sit back and just pause and really think about um, what the impact will be to the individual and whether actually the, the product, the solution is actually going to solve anything. And does it involve the people that are using it to the point at which they're going to adopt it, embrace it in the long term? If not, then it's not very useful. So this is what you do in your work. This is how you go about. You you explain these things to to your customers, or how do you how do you how would you describe define the human factor in technology? If you can if you can do that briefly, what is the human factor in developing? Well, um, it can be many things, I guess. So basically socio-technology is putting people at the center of technology. It's understanding how the two interact. Um, And there's a big piece of work in there in itself. And I'm actually doing research in that area in collaboration with a UK university to try and look more deeply as to how we embrace or don't embrace technology and how we interact with it in the long term. Do we take personal responsibility for cyber secure behaviors, for example? Um, Do we see it as a problem that is personal to ourselves or is it just a problem of the organization for which we work for? Um, It's kind of, um, I mean, we've come so far with technology and, and smartphones are now, they're almost part of our identity um it's part of us but the problem is that we we don't and it's not really a problem because it's perfectly natural that we shouldn't see this artificial piece of kit as as a part of us essentially it's part of us part of our identity and we know we need it and we use it in most things of our lives but it's disconnected from our personal feelings of safety and security. It's plastic, it's metal, it's got electric impulses that are different to our own. So trying to, it still feels very abstract. So trying to basically internalize that and have a personal sense of responsibility for ensuring that it's safe and it doesn't do any harm to us or our children or our parents is is a very difficult concept. It's a culture change that takes a long time to happen. Um, I mean, a culture change can take six to eight years. Well, can you imagine the advancements of technology in six to eight years? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Who knows what what we'll have in six to eight years. So technology is moving faster than we can understand um, the impact to to ourselves as individuals, let alone the human race in terms of environment, etc. Are we always going to be behind, so to speak? Is technology always one step ahead of us as human beings? Or will we we eventually catch up? I actually wouldn't necessarily say that technology is ahead of us. I think it's that 
it's moving more quickly than it should, than, than we are able to understand the full the whole picture we should be understanding the whole picture it shouldn't be technology is really just um an industry it's it's not mm. a beast you know without human beings it's nothing so we can say and it's wow, human beings hard. who are developing technology exactly yeah all. yeah so um it can only go as far as we're able to let it go uh, i think the problem is more to give it the freedom without understanding the human impact. You know, letting electric cars go off on roads with, with no sound and, and not really understanding uh, the, how are we gonna train the children to make sure that they know that there is a car there. You know, I was, I was brought up that you listened out to see if there was a car. Well, mm. how do I train my children to be more aware of cars that don't have sound? So, it, it, you know, you have to bring, take people into account whenever you're innovating and whenever you're putting a product out there in the market. Without doing that, there are severe consequences potentially. And, you know, it's not enough just to test it and have a few users in a, in a project group you, there needs to be a period of time in which um, a product can safely be tested in the environment yes uh, so true and then there is the issue the issue of uh, security which is uh, intertwined with all of, all of the, what you are saying uh, cyber security you have likened that with uh, a house alarm Mm -hmm. So the, the analog situation is where we live in a house and get used to locking the door, closing the windows and putting on the alarm. Is it more difficult for us to, to act in the same way uh, in our online houses, so to speak? Um, I think it's, you know, we understand. So an alarm is, is something we choose. It's something we may or may not invest in. Um, it's voluntary usually anyway we might adopt one if we move into an apartment or a house that already has one but most of the time we can choose whether we want to use it or not and we take responsibility for the consequences we understand that the alarm in itself however brilliant a piece of kit it is can only go so far in maintaining our personal security as you said we need to make sure we shut windows lock windows lock doors maybe keep a light on if we're going away, get the neighbor to pop in. So there are lots of other behaviors that we need to take into account when considering personal security when at home. The same thing needs to happen when it comes to cybersecurity. It's all very good spending, throwing money at the most fantastic piece of kit, um, the best software solution. But if the culture within the organization don't understand A, how it works, they don't have the capability to use it. They don't have the self-efficacy, which is basically having feeling like you are comfortable with using it. They don't understand the importance of it. Then they're not going to use it. So it's a waste. It's an alarm that nobody understands how to use. Yeah, um, I can relate to that. <laughs> but I also, there's yeah. there's a whole, whole lot of work that's you know some really great institutions and universities are are, are delving into research wise. Um, cybersecurity is not just about changing passwords. You know, there, there's a whole socio engineering part of it. There's a, there's a cult. It's become a culture. It's become a beast. Um, 
unfortunately it's been sort of sexed up to be this um yeah raging beast running through the forest about to attack people which isn't mm. very very <laughs> helpful with people that um you know scaring people does not prompt them to actually change behaviors it doesn't prompt them to um to to adopt new secure behaviors um it just prompts them to bury their heads which is not what you want um the key thing is to involve them in the technological solution right from from the design as we spoke about earlier yeah, yeah. um but also um get them to understand why you know why do we need this why is it important and how is it relevant to me as an individual not just to the you know the the budget or or the economics of the company mm. maybe it comes down to the common sense really i mean having the analogy with with the analog world uh, as we were talking about uh, locking your house uh, locking your car it's common sense because i mean everybody knows that there are i mean the world is full of uh, not full of but there are a number of frauds out there who want to fool us and who want to well to, to maybe steal our money or whatever and consequently you you lock your car and you lock your house and i as far as I understand, people nowadays don't really, to that large extent at least, click on these these um, shady links that they get in their e in the email, and uh, I mean links they don't fully trust. Uh, or mm -hmm. is this a, still a big problem? You mean, or I mean, to me, it, it is a large of large part of this is just common sense. Well, I'm 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 sure it is. Um to some degree but we're talking about quite a few different behaviors i mean you know there are there's a catalog of different human behaviors associated with cybersecurity. so um you're tapping into just one of them but i think the key thing is there's a lot of there's a culture of blame that's happening right now we've got the cybersecurity professionals many of them i'm not going to say all but but some of them um, blaming the employees. You know, we have words like human error, human weakness. That's, that's true, yeah. Yeah. And um, we have the leaders who of companies who are not adopting the behaviors himself or herself who are throwing a load of money at a piece of kit and wondering why the employees aren't utilizing it, also blaming the employees. So essentially, we're, we're currently in... A blame culture where everyone is blaming each other and nobody is taking responsibility. There is a lack of a multidisciplinary approach. There's a lack of collaboration, and the victims are the employees, um, the people that hold the budgets, and and the, the shareholders might feel like they're the victims, but also are the employees. They're the ones that have extra pressures on them. They have extra tasks to do as part of their daily jobs. You know, I heard once that they had some, someone had to change their password 13 times or log in with a password 13 times each day. Oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, where is the time to do that? You know, it's just ridiculous. You know, so that kind of time element needs to be considered. And, and I've pushed back at cybersecurity professionals before. And I think, don't get me wrong, I think they're doing a fantastic job and I don't blame them for this either at, at all. And I've said to them, I said, well, how long does it take to actually do the tasks that you need them to do to be secure? They, they have no idea. They literally cannot tell you. So therefore, 
it's, you know, the metric isn't there that enables it to be fully integrated into the company mm. because it might take, say it takes 15 minutes a day. Well, is that 15 minutes that that employee should take away from doing their, the job they're hired to do, the job that pays their bills, their livelihood, that puts food on the table for their children? Or should they care more about the assets of the company and spend 15 mm. minutes doing a task which they hate is co completely boring and feels completely irrelevant to them. Well, of course, they choose not to do the, the cyber secure behavior, the changing of passwords or whatever it is. And they choose to do the, the long to do list that's in their notepads, because that's what their manager really, really cares about. And that's what he's going to have, he or she is going to have a PDR, some sort of annual review around. That's what's going to pay the bonus. Mm. Sure. So you're saying, or is what you're saying that there is too much, uh, there is too much focus on on these technological uh, cybersecurity solutions, and, and uh, that one should look more into a, a smarter, more rational way of of uh, behaving, as far as the employees are is is concerned. Uh, I'm saying that if the cybersecurity solution, in fact, these aren't my words. This is the National Crime Center, um, Security Crime Center, NCSC in the UK. But if it doesn't work for the people, it doesn't work. If it doesn't provide a solution for the people, the employees, essentially, or anyone that needs to be using it. I mean, you wouldn't believe how many times I'm contacted by head of IT department saying, I don't know what to do my my staff my it professional staff know how to use they know what to do they know they need to change their passwords they know they need to encrypt their emails you know there's a whole range of tasks that they should be doing but guess what they're not doing it and i have no idea how to get them to do it please help me you know, mm. so <laughs> it's not just about the capability. It's not just about the training. There has to be a level of engagement. You have to involve and inspire people to really internalize it, to personify the risks and to make themselves part of the cybersecurity culture. The solution includes the people and the process and the culture, not just the technology. Yeah. So what do you say to these IT people that contact you? Desperate IT people. Well, of course, you know, I offer to help them um, as much as I can. You know, I mean, there's, there's often many, uh, many different challenges as to why that might be. You know, for example, if there's a lot of staff that are on contracts, short-term contracts, then they've been shown to have a limited um, sense of responsibility, a limited commitment to cybersecurity behavior um, and the assets, you know, protecting the assets of, of the business. So, so that's something to be addressed. Um, yeah. Also looking at the training, if it's relevant. Um, there, there's lots of different, you know, there, there isn't a, a quick fix. Um, I would like to develop my goal, Project Athena, um, which, is, which is a project, my research project that I'm working on, um, is to develop an algorithm, a framework by which these organizations, these teams can um, basically deal with prevention to prevent these breaches happening before they happen themselves. Mm. Um, so, so that's the goal and, uh, and that's where I'm headed. But it's a difficult, I mean, COVID has really um, forced this issue into astronomical um, 
a situation. You, you just, you know, we weren't expecting it. It, it. This is an issue that's been going on for some time, but it's become so much more of an issue because we're at home, we're working remotely, we're using our personal PCs, um, and we lack perhaps the knowledge or understanding of why we need to protect ourselves and the company yeah. with which we work for. So it, it's a very complex situation, but and with a variety of of dynamics and dimensions. But the most important thing to remember is it has to be multi-dimensional. It has to include different experts. Um, and we have to consider the long-term culture change, not just the quick fix. Yeah. yeah, probably there are lots of lessons coming out from this experience uh, for, for many of us. Cybersecurity is also closely related to transparency and uh, privacy, of course. And it's those things are at the core of the debate about the internet. And maybe it's you're not the person to answer this because you're working with cybersecurity. But but sh do you think we should dread or welcome the higher level of transparency and the lower level of privacy that seems to be possible with the internet? Maybe inevitable. What's your view on that? It's a big question, but. I guess well, you run into I mean, it sometimes in your, in your job. I, have, I mean, yes, I have done. I mean, as part of my work, I've, I've often, you know, as in communications engagement, I've been there working with, with the branding, the identity of, of organizations, looking at values, specifically mission statement, things like that. And transparency has, has been one that is very frequently used and, and rightly so. It's a, it's, you know, it, it builds integrity with, with the stakeholders, the customers, um, and, you know, it puts you in a, the, the business in a long-term um, positive reputational position. So transparency is absolutely vital. Uh, we need it to avoid corruption with, with politicians. We need it for, for everything. It, it's, it's, you know, transparency is, is, isn't, nice to have it, it's something mm. we simply must have in order to have a democratic society um, now there has been there is more tension now of course increasing tension between transparency and privacy um, in more recent years as social media has become so big um, and all our information all our data seems to be everywhere particularly in Sweden that was a big change for me to have all my data all over the internet um, yeah <laughs> that was interesting my privacy was uh, compromised by coming to Sweden I feel but yeah. um, that's 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 a different thing but I, I do feel uh, that they can be compatible transparency and privacy can be compatible the it doesn't have to be one or the other is what I'm trying to say. Um, but the absolute most important thing to consider is, is the power, the proportion, the power that we don't allow the abuse of power to happen. Um, so we have to take into account public interest. So, I mean, it's such a difficult thing, isn't it? With, um, power asymmetries it's so it's such a difficult balance to ensure that we have the right filters to protect our information uh to protect accuracy of information to protect the kind of you know we don't want our children seeing horrible content 
on the internet you know we want to protect them from that there's all these horrible instances of self-harming and you know horrible stuff that is being virally put out on social media so we want to protect them from that so we want someone to control to have a filter so that they don't have the opportunity to see those things but at the same time we want freedom of speech you know we want to be able to have the freedom to put out our own content um and 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 you know, not have to simply passively read what what someone what some specialist says. You know, we want, that's that's not in line with freedom of speech. So, um, so for that reason, it's it's a very difficult thing. But I, I do think that they can work together, yeah. transparency and privacy. But exactly how is of course difficult to to assess uh, in a few minutes on an interview <laughs> with this podcast. Well, you don't, you don't have to <laughs> feel the pressure to. <laughs> well, I think, you know, exactly taking into account um, public interests, as I said, really, yeah. um, addressing power asymmetries uh, rather than exacerbating them is, is absolutely yeah. important. I mean, if, if we look at um, the freedom of speech, if we look at India, for example, in 2003, um, they had the Right to Information Act um, in 2003. And since then, every single year, 30 transparency activists are either killed, beaten, or criminally intimidated. Um, so that's, and that's just from media coverage. There are many more that we don't know about. Um, but you know, there's no doubt that freedom of speech is one of those things that is absolutely critical. I think we all appreciate it. Um, but it's also something that is hard to maintain. You know, we have journalists, investigative journalists that are without jobs at the moment. There's nowhere for them to get work. And they are the ones mm. that challenge the authority. You know, they're the ones that identify the corruption, uh, abuses of power. So, you know, media organizations are struggling to survive. They're having to mm use commercial journalism or journalists or advertising in order to, you know, which give, you know, basically compromises on freedom of speech and, and unbiased information. So it is a constant struggle and I don't claim to have all the solutions. Um, but I do think if the focus is on um, ensuring that there isn't an abuse of power, um, then we can maintain yeah. um, some sort of balance between transparency and privacy. Yeah, striking the balance is perhaps uh, a constant, uh, a working constant, constant progress, so to speak. Uh, yeah, yeah. Talking about freedom of speech, that is a segue over to the the issue of uh, social media platforms, of course, mm. which is a big thing and a big discussion, a big debate, not least uh, uh, during um, election times, uh, like in Britain and in the United States. Well, we know all about mm -hmm. that. It's yes. a big discussion. And I, I saw this this uh, uh, documentary on Netflix. Maybe you've seen it as well. The Social Dilemma. Uh, it's fairly new. Mm -hmm. I recommend it really. It's a bit, it's okay. a bit gloomy, actually, a bit too gloomy for my taste. I think they, maybe they <laughs> um, put a, put a bit too much, uh, too heavy blame on the social media platforms for what is going on in the political sphere right now with the polarization everywhere. The very um, uh, hard, uh, it's getting 
well, the situation is getting more and more polarized. And uh, one uh, reason for that is, of course, that people are uh, gathering in those so-called filter bubbles on social media platforms. I, I don't think that's the whole explanation, but the, this, this documentary almost puts it that way. But what's your opinion about this? Uh, is it... Uh, Every, there, is, there is a concern about this, this ever more manipulative algorithms, of course, uh, that make people follow things and, and click on things and uh, get in their feed things that they already have started to like so that they, they don't see what's actually happening. And it, what they see in their feeds, they think maybe that this is the neutral, the, the general uh, uh, general feed that is that everyone sees but it isn't it's just what you see because you the algorithm knows what you're what you're interested mm. in yeah um, scary stuff mm. yeah it could be scary but it could also be i mean we are still people that are have thinking minds and we are intelligent intelligent people most of us at least so is this really an expression of evil social media platforms manipulating us or is it just an expression of how human beings function and have always functioned but it's more it's more obvious now well, it, it's both, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, I, I, again, I don't place the blame on, on social media platforms. They serve a purpose. We, they wouldn't be here if we didn't appreciate them. Right. So there are enough people in this world that appreciate them and value them. So therefore we're going to use them. So therefore they're going to exist. Um, of course, I don't, do know, I, I, I do not support any kind of abuse of that power in terms of, um, you know, voting the, the political situation that's been in the US and, and uh, UK and various different things. But um, I think social media can be can be very, very useful to many people. The problem with it is, is that it actually gives people a voice that may not have been heard otherwise. So extremes, it, it gives a voice to the extremes and that can be dangerous. Um, so the social media, you know, that they're trying to apply filters to dilute those extreme behaviors and those extreme voices. But in that way, you perhaps lose some really valuable content. So it, yeah. it, again, it's such a tricky you balance. And I know myself, I don't really use, I am on Facebook, but I haven't used it for many years. I'm only on there because I have family around the world and it's my way, an easy way to connect mm. with them. But actually, I don't look at my, my newsfeed anymore because all I see is a range of different adverts or content that Facebook thinks I want to see, but I don't really want to see. And again, it's, you know, I understand that they're trying to upload or, or you know, the algorithm is set so that the content, so that I want to go on it because the content's relevant to me, but they've got it wrong. For, for me personally, they've got it wrong. Maybe I'm not mm -hmm. an average user. Maybe I change. Well, maybe I you use it, you use it so <laughs> seldom that, it, that the algorithm can't, can't really figure out think so. what, what you want. Yeah. Yeah. But what I don't like is when I'll, I'll randomly search something on, on the internet and, and the next thing I see those keywords in, in an advert on Facebook. And that makes yeah. me feel a bit uncomfortable. Yeah, um, yeah. But I mean, ultimately, ultimately, there is there's an increasing call for regulation of the social media account of social media, the Internet, generally speaking. Um, but, you know, it's the power imbalance that we need to address, most importantly, mm. Mm. Um, protecting children from horrific content would be one thing to do. Um,
um, but also protecting freedom of speech. Yeah, it is important to do that. I mean, I, I can, everyone can, can uh, sympathize with the, the idea of protecting children, I'm sure, or most of us can, of course. But the other thing is more difficult, I think. I mean, I, I mean protecting freedom of speech entails uh, accepting some ideas and some opinions that you might, you might think are extreme. But, but I mean, uh, th there might be tens of millions of people out there thinking that these are not extreme ideas. These are... Yeah. Just ordinary ideas. Just well, of course, if it's if it's uh, about uh, uh, inciting violence and uh, telling people to kill other people, that's that's one thing. I mean, that's a crime. Mm. So that's that's fairly simple. That's straightforward. But I mean, to just uh, uh, spread ideas that you find a bit odd or a bit strange or a bit. I mean, shouldn't that be allowed? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, social media is just a communication tool. The internet yeah. is a communication tool. Uh, it's the same when you walk down the road. You know, you have pe people that are nice to you and people that stare at you and people that may, you know, rob you. Um, the same thing happens in, in the internet. And it's important that we educate our children to understand that. Um, but... You know, I think having the, the, the degrees of separation is the problem, actually, with, with the Internet mm. in the sense mm. of the probability that a child is going to come in contact with a man shooting himself in the real world is very, very small. The probability of that in the Internet is much, much higher. I can't tell you the exact probability, but it's much more likely. And that's terrifying. That's absolutely terrifying. And, and that's why we need to have some filters in place. We, we can't yeah. not have filters in place. But we need to have filters based on democracy, based on, on ethics. Um, you know, it can't be based on financial gain or advertising. Mm political benefits sounds very wise it's interesting with this this big brother th thought uh when we're talking about privacy privacy maybe it's pronounced privacy i don't know <laughs> or maybe the american pronunciation i don't know anyway yeah. and, and transparency we seem to be uh, well we we, we dread uh, this big brother thing you know governments or whatever big companies controlling us but when it comes to social media platforms we seem to have been pretty willing to voluntarily give up a lot of information about ourselves so it's like a, a, millions of little brothers and little sisters controlling each other <laughs> yes. in a completely different way than we that we envisaged this uh, before i mean we had this novel 1984 which was uh, considered very scary a scary future uh, but I mean, it seems as if uh, when it comes to, well, this possibility of uh, interacting with other people, other human beings, we are very willing to, to give up a lot, of our, a lot of information about us. Maybe we didn't realize many, 10, 15 years ago when this all started that it was going to be this accessible for everyone, for anyone all over the world. But, but I mean, still people do it. And uh, it seems as if it's, it's a human need, really. And I'm not talking about these violence things that you're referring to people 
spreading uh, inciting violence or spreading uh, pictures about pictures uh, showing people shooting each other or whatever but i'm just talking about the general mm. information mm. that we give out give out we put out there photos uh, information about uh, us going on vacation for the burglars to know when to <laughs> mm. yes, to go to indeed. our houses you know you know all these things people seem to be fine with that i don't i don't i just, I just find it interesting and fascinating yeah yeah i guess people have um, a varying sense of senses of compute uh, for security yeah. really it's some people are highly trusting whilst other people are more um, concerned should we say and that goes for cyber security personal security with alarms and windows and, and all those things mm. um, both are one of the same how worried are you that this uh, that that the internet and social media platforms and all the other interacting um, platforms that we have on the internet uh, will uh, strengthen polarization and uh, make things uh, more difficult for maybe be um, detrimental for democracy uh, how worried about are you about that uh, or do you think we will go? We are going to make. We are going to to adapt and adjust uh, accordingly, and uh, just. Uh, I think it's already happened. It's been happening. It's been going on for a long time. I think um, we're just becoming aware of it, and awareness is the first step. So I, I think it will continue for a long time in our lifetime. Um, but it's it's no different from when you have someone stand up in front of an audience and, and give a message and everyone listens and suddenly it becomes a religion or he becomes a god or she becomes a goddess. It's, it's the same thing. Um, I think having a sense of sensibility and a balance and recognizing that we don't, we can't believe everything we hear is, is vital when it comes to the internet as well as in real life. Excellent. Uh, okay. So thank yeah. you, Nadine Michaelidis, thank so you. much for joining the show. It's been a pleasure.